welcome to episode seven of the Macrovisor podcast. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Aisha. Hey, ma'am. It's good to be back and talking about a very interesting week ahead of us, uh, filled with a lot of economic data. And of course, Friday brings earnings season. So, But before that, I think let's talk a little bit about last week's data and you know, what we saw and what we make of it to set the stage for next week. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. Last week, I had my eyes on ISM. Manufacturing showed pretty big weakness across the board. The headline number was the worst since May of 2020. And we did see signs underneath the surface that there were job losses or a contraction in employment. The new orders number was also pretty negative. And then we saw in JALTS data, some signs of the number of jobs that were open shrinking. And finally, in services, there was still growth, but it was much closer to being flat. Whereas in prior months, the services industry was a little bit of an outlier with regards to its strength. It's interesting you bring up the topic of ISM, because I don't think a lot of people are paying a lot of attention to this. But I think the manufacturing data has been weak now for what, uh, two readings in a row, and we're definitely in contractionary territory. And just for our audience out there, ISM is basically the Institute of Supply Management. They conduct surveys every month uh, on the manufacturing side and on the services side on various data points. And they publish this data as a diffusion index, which means any number above 50 is expansionary and any number under 50 is contractionary. And usually when we see the ISM manufacturing data, you know, contract or remain in contractionary territory for too long, we tend to see a recession coming on. And this makes sense, right? Because if new orders are falling, it means the economy is contracting. Speaking of which, uh, this has some bearing on the markets as well, right? And particularly for a sector that's been very, very strong over the last six months. Uh, so what do you make of that? I think it's interesting because these are sectors that tend to do well during periods of economic strength and really get dragged down towards the end of the cycle as we approach a recessionary environment. And that could mean there's some opportunities here. And we're certainly seeing some signs in other adjacent areas well, as well, like construction. That's a good point. So all of these industrials that have been so strong for the last couple of months, I think this is where we start to see a little bit of a re-rating. I mean, we already know that this earnings season is going to be quite tough. And I think that's something that we need to keep an eye on, particularly in terms of, you know, new orders coming in and the manufacturing side of things. But you also spoke a little bit about, you know, labor being weak so we got a whole host of labor market data last week. Um, I, I believe we got the Joel's data, which you already spoke to. And then we also got uh, initial claims. I believe it was revised upwards. Was that the case? Yeah, last month, it was pretty surprising. We saw an increase of the re basically the revised level came up from 198,000 to 246,000. So there was a pretty substantial increase. And then this this week's data, the data that we just got, 
came in at 228,000. And so that was certainly an improvement from the prior week. But at the same time, we're seeing a trend here, a reversal, whereas there is more jobless claims coming through than we had seen prior. So what you're basically saying here is that unemployment is actually going up. But it's interesting that we didn't see that on Friday's data, right? So we saw exactly the opposite in Friday's data where unemployment actually decreased from 3.6% to 3.5%. Um, so what do you make of this? I think it's really interesting, Aisha. I think it, it kind of tells us that we're seeing two parts of this labor market, right? On the one hand, we have 1.6 jobs available for every unemployed person seeking work as measured by the ratio of where we see jolts and where we see insured unemployed people. On the other hand, though, I think it takes us to the labor force participation rate, which is still very low. There's just not a lot of competition to take up some of these available jobs. And I think it speaks to what you talked about a little bit earlier in that there's a mix of data here. So, and this is something that the Fed has pointed to uh, a number of times, right? The participation rate. So they're looking at this data very closely. So I actually looked a little bit under the surface as well of uh, the labor market data. And what we see is there's a, quite a lot of hiring going on in healthcare and in hospitality. So this is something to keep an eye on as well, because during COVID, we had a difficult period where, you know, there was nursing shortages, there was basically a shortage of employees in the healthcare sector. And now with that going away, I think things are improving and that should do well or that should bode well for um, uh, healthcare and basically hospitals in general. But at the same time, we also have the hotels that we see are doing quite well. We see MGM doing well, LV Sands doing well. So I think these two sectors should do well, or at least we should keep an eye on them, um, as the data suggests. I think that's a very important point, Aisha. And I'd like to speak to it also by saying healthcare has shown a lot of relative strength versus the broader market. Over the last week and over the last month, the sector has been one of the leading performers. It is a defensive sector. It's it's one of the places where if you're spending, you're not likely to cut your healthcare expenses any more than you have to. You might defer treatment, but ultimately you're going to try to go and get it. We do have an increasing age demographic in this country. We have, unfortunately, more people with chronic disease more people that are obese. There's more healthcare needs in the pipeline because of those demographic issues. And I think the other component of this is we see that institutional rotation from high beta risky stocks into these more defensive areas. It goes back to a trade we shared on the Macrovisor private Twitter feed talking about longing SPLV or low volatility large caps and fading high beta large caps. And that trade was up about 5.5% last week. So we can see that rotation continuing. That was a great call. Absolutely great call. So, and I think we've had some changes to healthcare policy as well in the last couple of weeks. And we have United Health uh, reporting on Friday. So I think we should hear a little bit about some of the changes in the healthcare policy from United Health. They've been very strong over the last couple of months as well. And I think they're poised to do at least be stable, if not do well in the next couple of months. So uh, I'm not making any calls here, but it's always good for us to listen to the earnings call and try to understand 
you know, what they're doing in the context of the macro and the industry in general. We learn a lot from these calls. That's a really good point. And I think that's something to expound on in the sense that there's so much to learn from these really important companies. They have so much information to share with us as investors, as students of the market, and as students of the economy. You would know that even better than I. And as you like to say, the numbers always tell a story. And I couldn't agree more. I think that's such an apt quote. But it also brings us to this intersection between the micro and the macro, something that's a theme at Macrovisor, because you'll see earnings lead to economic outcomes and economic outcomes lead to earnings changes. Absolutely. Speaking of the macro, uh, there's been a lot of debate recently about the dollar and something called the (laughs) de-dollarization. Now, uh, I know you've written a fantastic article and a thread on Twitter about it. If you ask me, I'm not touching that subject. So why don't you take us a little bit through your thought process and then maybe I'll chime in in the end. Okay, yeah, very good. So first, I just want to say to everyone out there who is a little worried about this, in in all seriousness, it's not time to panic. We have heard these machinations, these rumors, this idea of imminent de-dollarization going back decades. But particularly in my time trading, watching this since 2005, I can remember at least five or six occasions where there have been gold bugs and propagandists, probably from other countries and otherwise, kind of pumping this sensationalism that, oh, well, there's this new bilateral trade agreement and this means there's a new block of countries trading outside the dollar and somehow that means that we're all going to die and the dollar is going to zero. And the reality is much different than that. This is a process that, yeah, we will probably see de-dollarization over decades to come. It takes a long time. There's over $100 trillion of global debt denominated in dollars. Uh, There is a lot of the world's most attractive assets priced in dollars, if not in the United States. You've got so much international trade that goes in dollars. It's, it's, It's a very significant amount of global trade that's priced in dollars. It's the majority of it by far. If you look at just exchange reserves, there's about 60% of global exchange reserves in dollars as well. And that's fallen from 71% in 1999. So there is a change happening, but it's a gradual one. And it's it's something that I think we need to be concerned about, but not in an imminent sense. It's more like, what does the next 20 years look like with the dollar playing a less and less dominant role? So if and when I look at it, I look at it a little bit from the other side, okay? In the sense, what's the alternative? We're talking about a de-dollarization as in getting rid of the dollar, but What's the alternative? We have a number of different currencies, none of which are very stable, and none of them are universal. And so for us to actually take that step or for the world to take that step towards a different currency, I don't see it happening anytime soon, and I don't see it happening smoothly. I I, I don't see the alternative here. And I know a lot of this has been sparked by the oil trade being done in uh, the Chinese currency yuan, but that's because they don't have a choice, right? The U.S. has put sanctions, and 
these guys don't have a choice. But do you think that that means that they're only trading in yuan and then not trading in dollars? I mean, we've been through this before, not to this extent, but to a to some extent, right? And there's always been a way to trade in dollars, to ultimately trade in dollars, okay? I've been in the banking industry and I've seen things. Yes, we were not allowed to trade, do certain trades in dollars, but at the end of the day, dollars do get exchanged. So I don't understand why people are making such a big deal of it right now. Perfectly, as you said, it's not gonna happen anytime soon. And then the alternative isn't really there. For me, I'd be more interested in looking at the dollar right here, though. I mean, if you look at the dollar index, we've fallen to about 101 now, I think. A little over 101. And this is actually a very lucrative position uh, for the dollar. And for those who can't buy the dollar index, obviously, there is the fund called UUP. And I think it's something for us to keep a little bit of an eye on. I agree. I would also say there are some other trades that have my attention here uh, for short term to intermediate term. If we aren't on the verge of a recession imminently and the banking system is not going to be further imperiled in the short to intermediate term, gold might be an attractive fade. It, It may be one that when the dollar has some strength, gold comes down. And I'm not saying it comes down significantly. I just think animal spirits may have gotten a little bit excited over there. And I also think it's interesting to look at the unwinding of the longer part of the yield curve. We might see a little bit of of weakness in the 30-year bond as some of that fear unwinds. And it's kind of all kind of coming together under the same idea. But I agree. One last one I'll throw in there just for everyone there uh, to consider is that we have a new governor at the Bank of Japan. Their meeting, I want to say, is April 27th or April 28th for interest rate policy. But the bigger takeaway is what happens to the yen? Are they going to keep this sort of you know, perpetual yield curve control in place. We've already seen the 10-year JGB breaking above the 50 bips cap. It's challenging it. It's calling into question the resolve of the new governor. If we don't, the yen will probably be an interesting short-term pop, but that short-term pop still may present an opportunity to fade it. The path of least resistance for the currency of a deeply troubled government with a 260% debt to GDP ratio is probably lower And the Japanese central bank, even if they stop yield curve control, can you believe this? They own 46% of the country's bond market. (laughs) That's right. They do. And uh, yeah, I'm laughing, but it it, it is uh, quite uh, interesting. (laughs) So uh, yes, you're right. The meeting is on Friday for us on this side of the world. And for the US, it's going to be Thursday night. So because of the time difference, that's how it will work out. I was right in both ways. I love it. You you were right. (laughs) I still have a problem with time zones, even though, you know, it's been a while and I should get used to it, but it's still a little uh, challenging from time to time. Our, Our ongoing joke is, of course, you're in the future. I am in the future, yes. So I see things before everyone else. <laughs> right. So I think we've uh, covered almost everything uh, from last week. Coming up this week is going to be very interesting with Friday because we start off earnings season. But 
just before that, we do get a few other earnings that I am watching uh, during the week. So I believe on Tuesday, we have Albertsons report. They're a grocery chain, supermarket um, chain. And so we should get some indication of, you know, consumer health from them, consumer spending. On Wednesday, we have LVMH. Um, That should give us some indication of how uh, the other half live. So basically how luxury spending is going. And um, it should give us some indication as well of how the revenge spending is um, taking place in China because the Chinese are big buyers of luxury goods now. They, they seem to love LV and uh, the brands. So that should give us some signal over there. And then finally, on Thursday, we have Fastenal, which is an industrial, albeit a smaller one, but it should give us, and Delta, I'm sorry, we also have Delta Airlines. So, so we have industrials on one hand, and we have the airlines on the other, and that should give us some indication of what we should expect from the airlines in general. But Friday marks the start of earnings season for me with the banks. Obviously, we have JP Morgan, we have Citigroup, we have Wells Fargo, and uh, we have BlackRock as well. Right now, I think everybody's going to be very focused about, um, you know, all these unrealized losses in the health to maturity security or, or health to maturity treasuries and securities that the banks have. But I don't think that should be a focus with the banks that are reporting on Friday because these guys are fortress balance sheets. I mean, I've looked at their book values, I have uh, adjusted their book values for the health to maturity securities. and. Even if, you know, they've changed, even if the losses have increased, these guys are way too big to be affected uh, significantly. But what I would be interested in over here, rather, is um, the provisions. So we've been seeing provisions increase steadily and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember my numbers correctly, JP Morgan took something like 900 million in provision uh, last quarter. And so this is something that we better keep an eye on because more than a liquidity risk with these banks, I see a solvency risk. It's not an outsized risk where JP Morgan is concerned, but if JP Morgan is feeling a little bit of heat, you know, the other banks are on fire, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. So it will be very important for us to listen to what Jamie Dimon has to say. I always love hearing him speak. Um, He gives us, let me put it this way, his mood And the way he conducts the earnings call gives us an indication of what we should expect in the quarter ahead. Because don't forget, JP Morgan banks all the big companies, right? So most of your S&P 500 is banked by JP Morgan. So he knows and he can feel it. So when he's looking at stress testing for the corporate bank or for the investment bank, he's seeing the numbers flow through. And so I think it'll be important. I always listen to him live um, and it'll be important for us to sort of unpack that once we get through it. 
Absolutely. So we've got, uh, even though it's a lighter week of earnings, we've got some pretty important moving parts to pay attention. And then, you know, we also have a pretty jam-packed week of economic data. But before we get into that, we have the never-ending show. We love it. I mean, we can't get enough. It's Fed Speaker Reality Show all week long, starting Monday, going through Tuesday. I mean, then we get FOMC minutes on Wednesday and another Fed Speaker on Friday. It's it's kind of like once they get out of the blackout period, we just go back to the real world, starring the Board of Governors and the FOMC. Like, it's, <laughs> it's really <That's>... quite... <laughs> And then we also have CPI coming in on Wednesday alongside those FOMC minutes. So prepare for a wild ride. On Tuesday, on Thursday, we have PPI and initial jobless claims, both of those event volatility catalysts coming in at 8.30 a.m. And then finally on Friday, we've got retail sales at 8.30 a.m. and consumer sentiment at 10 a.m., all of these are the most important economic data coming out. There's obviously some other things in the works, but if you're going to look at anything, look at this data to get a better sense of where the economy is going and check out our website. If you're not already subscribed to macrovisor.com, you can get 50% off right now for the next several weeks. And if you apply that discount, it lasts for your first year. So we've just opened up the doors to our premium offering. We've got both our own research where we're making macro data and our analysis accessible and actionable to everyone. And we also have a private Twitter feed where we give more real-time insights and analysis. And Aisha and I are really happy and proud to be able to announce this to a greater audience on our podcast. And as we move forward, we're going to be continuing to build out more and more. So check us out. You can subscribe for free if you want to get a preview, or you can go in and you can get your first year at 50% off. That's great. And so uh, just one more thing to add, what we're going to be doing as well on the website is every weekend throughout earning season, um, we will look at a review of the earnings that just passed. And we will look at a preview of what we should be looking at um, for the week ahead. So we've given you a little bit of uh, what we're looking at for this week. Um but for the coming week, we're going to be doing that on the website as a presentation with slides, and it's going to be a video. So that's something to look forward to, and I hope it's going to be helpful for the rest of the earnings season. Absolutely. This is going to be such an important earnings season, too. So, Aisha, pleasure having you on. Really a lot of fun to do this for everyone out there. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast and your favorite service, consider doing that, and we'll catch you next Tuesday. <laughs>